Continuous Emissions Monitoring Systems, or SEMS, have come a long way since Congress first articulated performance standards for new stationary sources back in the 70s. Power producers, as well as keepers of other industrial-scale combustion processes in the U.S., must continuously measure and report the output of nitrogen and sulfur oxides, carbon monoxide, and other potentially harmful byproducts. And today, they have at their disposal a range of solutions for doing so. Hello, this is Keith Larson, editor of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com. Welcome to this Solution Spotlight episode of our Control Amplified podcast, sponsored today by SICK. With me today to talk about the range of SEMS technologies now available and how to choose among them are Phil Ziskowski, Market Application Engineer, and John Callum, Market Product Manager for Analyzers and Continuous Gas Analyzer Systems, both with SICK. Welcome, Phil and John. A real pleasure to have you join me here today. Thanks for inviting Thank us. Keith. You bet. Exciting it's an exciting topic. So <laughs> very, very relevant in this day, that's for sure. Maybe start off with you, Phil. Um, SICK has obviously been in the SEMS and gas analysis business for, for decades and now offers a really a full breadth of, of, of solutions. Perhaps we can start uh, you can start us off with a bit of historical perspective on the first analyzer systems used for SEMS reporting and how those options have evolved over time? Sure. It, and it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a history we're proud of. And so I'll try to uh, keep it short and simple, but it, it has to do with our funny name, Sick. And uh, it's actually a family name. And the founder, Dr. Erwin Sick, w- was a, an inventor and in particular with optics and light. And, and they were fascinated and drawn to finding solutions. And, and, and it's always been safety or environmentally focused, right? And so uh, the story goes uh, where he started his first shop, a very simple shop, was a low rent property near the airport uh, in the town that he was he started the business in. Right? And and he he was fascinated by the, the, the beacon that indicated the position of the airport and the runways. And, and he saw uh, how that light from that beacon broke up on foggy days versus clear nights and rainy days. And so that's really where he got the idea for our first SIMS monitor, and that was for measuring dust. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the concerns with the, the, the industrial uh, revolution going on at that time and, and all the pollution. And so he used a, an optical system, a very simple but brilliant system to measure dust, and that evolved into measuring gases as well. And so he got to a position where really, if it wasn't something he could invent, he was smart enough to acquire and so when you talk about that history, it keeps evolving over time. You know, we, uh, simple infrared-based systems, uh, which we would, we'll talk about later, you know, cold, dry, for measuring CO, CO2, anything that's infrared active. And then the evolution of uh, techniques like ultraviolet to look at things like ammonia and uh, SO2. And it's gone step by step in, in, in different directions, but for sure, We'll talk about the full portfolio, you know, through the uh, process of uh, of these questions and interviews. But you know, it's 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 been tough to keep up with the times. And so part of that, you know, is is how the the regulations. You know, the question you asked me was Sims reporting, right? And so the regulations have evolved over the time as well. And, and uh, probably we'll get into it a little bit later. But things like measuring ammonia. Ammonia has been injected by a lot of our power plants, for example, and uh, you know. It was cheap. It was easy to inject, but now the concern is ammonia slip. How much of it are we over injecting and how much is it is ending up in our fly ash at the end of the day? So yeah. those are evolutions that we had to keep in step with. 
Yeah. And, and as, as I recall, SICK was a real pioneer around safety systems as well with some machine protective monitoring, also using light as well back in the day. Yeah. 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 It, it's called, it, it's referred to as a safety curtain. Uh, yes. So it's really, yeah, to keep uh, workers, you know, hands and, and uh, body parts uh, out of stamping machines. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with uh, Homeland Security, that uh, those products have taken off for us as well. <laughs> different subject for a different time, but there's, yeah. there's more than just the, the safety aspect for it. It's uh, identifying where people are at the right place or the wrong place. And yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, well, we'll leave the um, the pattern recognition assisted by AI <laughs> algorithms for another day. That's all. That's all. <laughs> yeah, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time for that. Yeah, but um, maybe uh, um, maybe John, you could talk a little bit. I know there's some different requirements. I mean, obviously, the big users traditionally around the world is the, the power industry. Um, for for um, they were really the first required to. Uh, to, to monitor their emissions. But are there different requirements for some solutions if you're talking about power gen versus say chemicals or refining or other other process industries that may need some sort of a monitoring solution? Yeah, great question, Keith. Uh, yeah, the power generators uh, were the first ones to be hit with the you know Clean Air Act. And typically when you think of power plants, I think of uh, you know coal power, there's also gas-fired power, but all of them typically require general purpose analyzers. When you move into chemical, petrochemical and refining industry spaces, different regulations, different hazardous area electrical requirements, and usually a minimum of class one, FM class one div two, or in some instances, class one div one. So from our standpoint, from a supplier standpoint, we have to comply with the uh, electrical area classification. And so it's a little tr more trickier, but we have the solutions for uh, class one div two to either in a purged enclosure or a non-incentive uh, type arrangement to be safe in those in those areas i understand there's also significant differences uh, around the types of, of some solutions whether they're extractive or increasingly moving more towards kind of probe-based systems that are there um, in situ or in place maybe you could talk a little bit phil about about Maybe in the context of the installed base globally, um, are there different types of, of some systems that are prevalent in different regions around the world and, and, and which kinds? Just kind of give us a sense, because I know obviously SICK had its, its, its roots in, in Germany and in the European market originally, but have, have, have they really, through the different regulations, kind of evolved differently around the world? Yeah, they have, and, and it's interesting. Because you know, regulation-wise, there's a lot of countries, and again, let's let's talk regulations and not analyzer solutions sure. uh, or systems. But a lot of countries will make reference to U.S. EPA standards. In uh, Germany, does not, uh, but the Saudis, uh, Mexico, Canada, to name a few, China also typically references the standards that the U.S. EPA has set up. And so you would think that 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 makes everything cookie cutter, and it, it and it's actually uh, <laughs> <probably> not <laughs> it's uh in in most of europe the uh the attraction early on to to an in situ measurement and it's a strange word we don't use at the kitchen table every day so it's it's you know probably latin based for inside of right so in situ means we don't extract the sample and pull it somewhere and chill it and, and filter it and then put it through an analyzer like maybe you would do in a laboratory. Institute means we, we stick as much of the uh, analytical 
uh, measuring cell inside the stack and or ductwork that's being measured. Mm -hmm. And so that that is typical outside of the U.S. as as, as a SIM system. And in the U.S. market, uh, they chose to adapt a more complicated, typically, and, and uh, as John mentioned, most of this burden fell on the power coal-fired power generation industry mm -hmm. right off the bat. But so they use a more complicated dilution extractive system that pulls the sample down from the, the you know the middle of the stack into a shelter down at the base of the stack and goes through a series of filters and chillers and you know takes some time. So there's always the risk there of changing your sample between point A and point B. Maybe uh, some of the constituents get uh, entrained in the water vapor and they get dropped out. So always our approach is to go in situ unless we can't make in situ work. Right. And uh, of course, the, the next trick there is to meet the regulations that were adapted for the extractive systems. And so we have we've done several modifications so we can adapt to the U.S. market. Yeah, one of the things that maybe be good to clarify on obviously the regulations requirements for being um, exposed to a, a calibration gas directly. How do you go about doing that in a in a in a in situ probe base? You're not you're not Filling that stack up with a calibration gas that could get pretty pricey on a regular basis. How yeah, how does yeah. that work? Well, good for the good for the gas calibration exactly. folks, right? So yeah, so, so there's 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 two approaches, and it, it kind of goes back to your earlier question about power generation versus some of the other industries, right? Exactly. And so so power generation has got the strictest calibration requirements, and typically it's it's called Part 75, mm -hmm. uh, and that. Uh, requires a daily gas calibration that, that is written in the rule. And so we adapted our regular in-situ probe to uh, have an encapsulated filter. And it's a centered me uh, metallic filter that allows us to send the calibration gas into the probe space, the little measuring section of the probe, and pressurize it with your calibration gas. And it, it exposes the cal gas to the uh, the receiver. And it also forces the stack gas out, so you get a nice clean uh, calibration standard. But 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 in the other the other industries, we've incorporated, and it's in all of our our in situ analyzers, a, a series of internal optical filters. And so Part 60, for example, so it's an EPA regulation as well, but it does allow the use of the manufacturer's suggested calibration optical calibration filters as your daily calibration. So you do not have to use calibration gas on a daily basis. Hmm. Uh, you've got to check the analyzer on a quarterly basis still with calibration standards. But so th there's savings there uh, for sure and, and uh, a lot less maintenance if you can get by with just using the optical filters. Makes a lot of sense. really does. Uh, what other factors need to be considered when an uh, end user needs to, to select a system? What do, what do they have to consider? Because I mean, obviously there's... On, even on the extractive, there's the the cold dry systems that that, that, that you know drop the the water out by um, dropping the temperature of the sample. But then there's also hot and wet systems, and then there's there's the probe based systems, the in situ options. What are the considerations that people really need to to look at when deciding up with between those te technologies or those general approaches? Yeah, I mean, I'll ask John to chime in a little bit, but I think. You know, our approach always at SICK from a uh, applications evaluation point of view is, is, is always to try in situ first. Mm -hmm. And so there, there will be showstoppers, we call them, uh, that will uh, rule in situ out. Uh, you know, uh, one of them may be access. Where the customer wants to take a sample, there is not just, there's just not enough room. So an, an extractive probe uh, might be the size of a shoebox. 
whereas our in situ analyzer, it's five times that. So you right. might not have room in that particular area to install or withdraw. At, at some point, you're going to want to withdraw it, right? Our next approach is always hot wet after that. Uh, hot wet, a special, unique construction that we've invented uh, that allows us to, to take the sample in without having to put it through a chiller. Okay. And so that eliminates a couple extra pieces uh, that are usually maintenance intensive, right? Uh, water coalescers or uh, chillers that, that have pumps and, and, and filters and things like that. Yeah. And then, you know, finally, if, if neither of those two approaches will work, then we have the cold dry, which is tried and true. Uh, yeah. uh, there's familiarity with that. And, and so that's the way to go. Sometimes Keith, it's the uh, measurement gases that uh, drive that as well. For typically for SIMS though, we have an in-city solution for, for all that, but if the customer wants to measure something more exotic, uh, we may have to go with a cold dry analyzer that has uh, more options for gas analysis. Gotcha. So that's beyond the UV or um, IR type of, of yeah. analysis? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it, it depends on how much room is there, too. You know, uh, we had talked about some changes happening, and John mentioned gas-fired plants coming on board. I've even got some of my customers converting part of their coal-fired plants to run on natural gas as a fuel. And so depending on what they have there already in the way of uh, real estate, uh, in situ is off, also uh, often a nice surprise. You know, they, they don't need a lot of extra uh, hardware. They don't need a lot of extra, you know, <laughs> elevators and, and, and things. Yeah. They could, it could be installed somewhere that's handy to get at rather than uh, up on a, a stack somewhere. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Makes sense. But given the, you mentioned this is a pretty dynamic, uh, <laughs> dynamic trends in this industry, given the increasing pressure on industry to account for and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it seems reporting on carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases could be could be in our future um, from a regulatory standpoint or for, or just from companies that want to have more complete um, reporting to their um, their stockholders those kind of things are there any of these solutions that are more particularly suited or more flexible to adding new analyses to the mix say you've already got something installed What's involved if you wanted to add another component that you didn't <laughs> didn't have part of the original mix? Yeah, for in situ, for us, it would be a separate analyzer, so they have to make a separate penetration okay. uh, for a, a single probe or a cross duct for measuring CO2. Uh -huh. uh, if it was extractive, say cold dry, uh, it would just be a matter of adding an additional uh, optical bench in DIR, or we may be, may be able to modify change the calibration on the existing um, NDIR that's already in place. So, you know, just off the top of my head, Phil, you may say different, but I would think, you know, the extractive might lend itself to be modified to, uh, if it's after the fact, I mean, if we know about it going in, of course we can plan for it and design it, but if it wants to be added in the future, I think it's a little easier to add it with the, ex the extractive. Phil, do you agree or disagree yeah yeah i, I mean the, the the thing to consider also john and, and keith is the numbers right so so typically with a like an in-city uv we make the bench compact on purpose and so we're, we're typically limited to three measurement components there right and and, and with the new the new generation we, we've made the optical bench a module so if you, if you change your mind and say those aren't the three we want there's a good chance that we can supply you with another optical bench module that would take some setup and it could be done in the field whereas like a heart wet you can pick from a, a list of nine gases 
yeah. right? And so like John said, if you, if you kind of know ahead of time, yeah, we've got this ammonia slip thing coming up or we've got you know, someone on the process side is, is interested in, in this, it's, it's going to be our SIMS, but uh, we would like to take that, you know, that uh, additional measurement. We could put it in and, and keep it turned off or we could be there and running in the background or it, it, there's, a, there's a bunch of different options. And, and then for sure, the cold dry, a matter of a module pretty close to plug and play to add add more gases you just add another rack yeah i suppose if you're thinking ahead you could have a have a extra process penetration already uh, already made and, and do the same with adding another uh, another probe uh, the other way around i suppose yeah and that's part of that's part of what happens in the process when we we start talking with customers is is we we try to enlighten them to what others have done or what uh, what considerations other people have made in, in some cases open their eyes to well i didn't know that was possible or uh, that would be handy you know especially on the front end uh, rather than having to turn things off and, and you know re-engineer them so mm -hmm. no that makes a lot of sense all other things being equal i mean when i as a chemical engineer i always had the sense that an in situ measurement because it's it's immediate and you're doing it at that actual time and, and you're not pulling a sample out where things can go wrong and it can get corrupted somewhere along the way that in situ is, is, is a better measurement in, in a lot of ways. And, and when it comes to themes like an cost design and installation effort, also it's, it's, it's a more elegant <laughs> solution in terms of the number of moving parts involved. Would you agree with that? And what sorts of savings are we talking about when it comes to initial capital costs and over, over the full system life cycle? Have any users done a proper economic life cycle comparison i sense they probably have but what what did what did they what have they found on the in situ versus extractive solution yeah keith we were at our uh epre conference and uh, one of the uh, integrators uh did an analysis on uh, in situ versus extractive and uh over the 10 year life of the uh system it came up with uh it was a million dollars cheaper to do the in situ route versus extractive, and that's taken into account the initial cost, uh, installation, capital costs, operating expenses, consumables over the entire 10 year lifespan of the, the system. So the cost savings, if they can go in situ, are extremely attractive over the life of the analyzer mm -hmm. uh, system. Yeah. And there's nothing really holding back US power generators or other organizations from using uh, in situ in terms of the regulatory requirements there's nothing that dictates which way they have to go it's just kind of more the way they've gone is that fair to say yeah, yeah i right. mean there's a comfort level there's a comfort level right yeah. and, and so people are you know and i get it you know the cost of some of these systems no one wants their name associated to a mistake right <laughs> oh my gosh why did you why did you pick that why didn't you just do the thing that we always did why, you know, why did you try that so yeah there's a little bit of you know anxiety over that and i think that's up to us as a, as a supplier to uh, you know prove uh, you know uh, go above and beyond to to build some comfort and, and, and prove that these these work the way that they work as advertised. Right? That's great. All right. Well, I think we're about up to the end of our time. Thanks so much, Phil and John. Really appreciate your sharing your perspective with us today. Again, my guests today have been Phil Ziskowski and John Callum, both of Six Process Automation Technology Group. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in, and thanks also to SICK for sponsoring this episode. My name again is Keith Larson, and you've been listening to a Control Amplified podcast. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe at the iTunes Store and at Google Podcasts. Plus, you can find the full archive of past episodes at controlglobal.com. 
Thanks again, John and Phil, and signing off until next time. <laughs>